Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg with Venture Stories from Village Global, and today I'm joined with two very exciting guests, co-hosts for this episode, Ali Hamed of CoVenture, and the other is Tonio DiSorrentino of Vimo Education. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, man. So we're here today to talk about ISAs. Tonio, can you talk about what ISAs are and what you guys are doing at Vimo and how you got into it in the first place? Sure. So an income share agreement or an ISA is a contract where somebody gets tuition or value like money up front in exchange for a percent of their future income. And that income is measured as a percent of income for a period of months with a cap, a maximum amount paid, and a minimum income beneath which nothing is paid. I first got into income share agreements as a lawyer. I was in private practice at a big law firm based in San Francisco And we had a client come through who was trying to do this. And it wasn't called an income share agreement, but it was a a similar arrangement. And it really piqued my interest. So I got involved with this client, tried to help them get going and scale. This is 10 years ago. And over the course of my career in private practice, I got to help probably six different companies or people try this in one form or another. All of them pivoted or failed. and that stuck with me though. So like I, I went in from private practice. I, I joined SoFi. I was recruited by Mike Cagney to be an early employee at SoFi, which is a big diversified financial services business. At the time, it was a student lender. And as much as I was learning and working at SoFi, I was thinking about this idea. So I was kind of haunted by the fact that this was such a great idea. How come it never worked? And I, I think that watching what worked at SoFi For example, a really mature team and a really relentless focus on a specific customer that came through to me as what was missing from income share agreements. And so I I left SoFi to co-found this business when I figured out that I could get the team that it would take to do it and have the right customer. And so the why here at Vimo is I've always thought this was a, an idea that deserved a chance. It hadn't worked. It's working today because we focus on helping schools. That could be skills-based accelerated learning providers like General Assembly or colleges like Purdue University. But we help them communicate value to students. And that's how I got into this. And I would say the why now of why schools are ready for it, because thank goodness they were ready when we started the place started this thing is people used to look at college or education generally just aspirationally. And they would ask when looking at college or any kind of post-secondary education, can I afford this? And for a long time, the answer was yes, with enough loans or financial aid. And that got us to this place where we have a student debt crisis. In light of that student debt crisis, students and their parents are asking a different question. And they're asking, is this worth it? To answer that question, colleges actually need income share agreements. They need VMO. And so that's why by focusing on colleges with the right team and doing it today, we're 
scaling this. Awesome. Can you give a little bit of the intellectual history of ISAs? It's a very rich one with, with Milton Friedman. But, and, and talk a little bit about you know where it came from, previous iterations, uh, and wh- why they didn't work. Sure. I think the idea, so the idea is old, born of economist Milton Friedman, who wrote about equity and the risk in careers. Later, the idea took form in, in the Johnson administration under the name of an educational opportunity bank. I think the first application of this in higher ed by an institution was at Yale University. Um, Yale tried to, in the 70s and early 80s, implement, in lieu of student loans, a system where students could get some or all of their tuition waived in exchange for income-based payments into a fund. That experiment, we'll call it an experiment, didn't work well for the participants. Some important defects were that instead of paying a, each person paying a percent of their income for a defined period of time, it was a group of people committed to paying percents of their income until the investors behind the pool earned a certain IRR hurdle. So people had to pay in to hit an investor rate of return, and they had to pay jointly and severally. So they were paying in all together. And of course, they were allowed to prepay by paying up to that IRR and take themselves out of the pool. So you had the highest earners paying, buying their way out, the very lowest earners owing little. And then a bunch of people in the middle stuck between, geez, should we pay to cover everybody else or should we shirk this? And a lot of them shirked. And so the ones who stayed in it weren't treated fairly and had a bad experience. So Yale ended that experiment, which included President Clinton, my understanding. And everybody looked back and said, well, that won't work. I think it's really, I would say, oh, going from Yale, I mean, which was a thing, again, based on a time value of money hurdle and people paying as a pool, that kind of killed the idea for a while. The idea came back in the 2000s with Lumni, a company based in Latin America, trying to get in the United States. And then in the 2010s with startups like Upstart coming in venture-backed and trying to do either... In the case of Lumni, impact-based income share agreements, which would be more charitable or philanthropically oriented alternatives to loans for people who couldn't get loans or are culturally averse to debt. Or in Upstart's case, connecting backers with people who need capital, as well as mentorship to help them grow. And that would be outside the context of a specific higher ed institution. And so there were I would say types of income share agreement ventures that were more like Lumi and types that were more like Upstart. But then you come to 2016, which is the first income share agreements we did at Vimo, and we were out in the market with Holberton School, Make School, and Purdue University. It's a different thing. Make School pioneered this on their own without us, but Purdue and Holberton came to market with Vimo, Make School joined Vimo, and we focused on linking an institution's fortunes to the individual's fortunes as opposed to an investor's fortunes to individual fortunes and leaving the institutions out of it. And how does that make things different? Huge difference. I think if you talk to colleges, if you, if you had a bunch of colleges 
representatives of colleges in a room and you said, raise your hands if you think it's up to you to make sure your graduates make money, they wouldn't necessarily volunteer for that. Certainly not all of them. However, if you ask students and parents, what are you trying to buy when you go to a school, including colleges, it's something like 88% say it's an early career path. So we know that for this to work, let's step back a little. If this were to work without institutions, there would have to be enough value exchanged between an investor and a student to make the investor a fair return and give the student at least as good a deal as they could get from a student lender. So in the case where this is revenue neutral to a college or, or educational institution, all the value you can measure has to come from the investor and the student. People who had tried income share agreements before were trying to do that. And it is really hard to do. So if you look at SoFi, SoFi went with fairly riskless borrowers. They competed with the federal government on price. And by beating the federal government by maybe 100 basis points and targeting borrowers who had very big student loans, they could make this worth everybody's while. It's really hard to do that in income share agreements where you have valuable downside protection, but people don't know how to price that. You're competing against private student loans, which everybody hates, except for that they, but they are commoditized and, and they're efficient. And there's a lot of history there. And so for investors to get a fair return versus they, they, they do know how to value the downside risk versus an in, a student in school, it's too hard to scale that. You end up with one side or the other kind of taking advantage of each other. So I think the, the, the key here is that you answer a different question when you partner with institutions. When you use an income share agreement as a competitor for a loan, you're asking the question or you're answering the question, you know, what's the best way to pay for college? But when you work with an institution, there's another source of value there. You can answer the question, which college should I choose? Because if you're picking between two colleges and one says, pay and pray, pay up front, we'll see what happens. And the other says, pay only if this works. And by if this works, we mean the thing that you and your parents are trying to buy, at least for some of your tuition. It's easy for students to pick the second option, even if they think income share agreements are a gimmick, even if they had the money to pay up front. The school that is investing in its students, even if not every single student, is the one that is showing it's really aligned with what students are trying to buy. And that's traditional students, but even more so non-traditional students. Those would be adult learners, students who are parents, people who have tried college and dropped out and are now serious about a career, veterans, underrepresented minorities. I think there are a lot of people who care a lot about the economic mobility part of higher education. So when we work with colleges, they're spending a lot of money to acquire students. They're spending a lot of money to position themselves as valuable and worth the tuition they charge, particularly versus community colleges or regional public institutions. And we're able to help them with that. They can signal value in a way that people cannot mistake. Now, it's hard to quantify that initially, but we can say that it's worth more than zero. And by starting there, Vimo and our school partners have helped to scale income share agreements beyond this novelty that they were historically. But before we get into whether individuals should be investing in individuals as well, let, let's just zoom out and talk about what, what's the real potential and promise behind this idea, you know, not of investing in people, not just as it relates, or ISAs rather, not just as it relates to college education, but as it relates to 
you know, other applications or manifestations. Maybe Ali, maybe you could talk about why you're so excited or intrigued by the idea of ISAs and then perhaps some of the, some of the challenges and concerns you see. Well, you know, I think the way Tony has approached it, it makes a lot of sense, which is he's basically going to universities who are incentivized to attract a student who don't need the same return on investment as private investor or somebody who's only looking for a monetary gain. You know, I think in some ways you're almost passing on cost of customer acquisition as part of your yield. And that distribution channel is incredibly important. The problem with a lot of ISAs or other applications of ISAs from our perspective has been you end up investing in a student and you're basically taking equity-like risk on the student, but you're getting debt-like returns. And you can't have debt-like structure on the investment because you can't put the same type of covenants on an individual as you would on a company. You know, if I lend to a company and I'm expecting some fixed return, I can apply liquidity covenants, I can apply governance covenants. Imagine applying liquidity and governance covenants on an individual. So unless you have the same distribution channel that Tonio has, you end up basically, you know, I kind of revert, you get equity-like risk, but debt-like returns, which is a really bad combination. You know, I think that Tonio is reinventing how schools make them attractive and, you know, whether it's the university or vocational school or whatever it might be, they're basically passing on their cost of recruitment, cost of, you know, student acquisition as part of the yield that they're really calculating. I think it's hard to believe that not everyone will eventually move to that. It's, it's all, you know, the, the pay and pray model, as Tonya just said, just is unbelievably stupid compared to what Tonya is doing. Why won't we see a Kickstarter for college education where people can just invest directly and, you know, on some talented 15 year old who's trying to raise money for their future college education? Because if I'm funding a Kickstarter campaign and my only, if, if it's, you know, a, a kid that I'm related to, I don't need a great investment return. I probably need to break even. And I'm thrilled. And if I lose a little bit of my money, I'm still thrilled. But if it's a stranger and I can either fund their Kickstarter campaign, helping them go to school, or I can go put my money on Yield Street or some other, you know, comp, I would require a higher rate of return than a university would if they were the one providing that capital or part of the capital stack providing the capital to the student because all I get out of it is a financial return, whereas the university or some incentivized funder is getting a reduction in their cost of recruitment, a reduction in the cost of advertising, and a higher group of people, a larger group of people applying to their school. And so they're okay with a residual return. I just, as a private funder, I would just always have a higher cost of capital than some funder with a ancillary or secondary motivation, whether it's a reduction of cost elsewhere or some philanthropic bend. Tony, what's your take on why, why we won't see a Kickstarter for, for college education right now? And what would need to be true for us to see that? Well, as to that question, there's just a lot of friction in that model. And our government in the United States is very pro-access. And so against that backdrop, you'd have to be able to improve on what's really inexpensive capital for students, uh, at least to a point, for undergraduate and graduate study without the challenge of com- you know, competing for attention from folks. I think any asset what, you know, or financial product needs to, to hit real scale needs to get to a place where it's somebody's job to buy it every month and or to create it every month. And in a Kickstarter-like model, your hardest part would be supplying capital because nobody has the job of funding novelty 
you know, with their discretionary income, as opposed, so even if you could get all the students to, to create content and compete for funding, I think scaling the capital side of that marketplace would be really difficult. And, and that's because college is such an expensive thing in the United States. Would it have to be for something totally different, like a Lambda school? Or maybe that, maybe that's the wedge into something like this is you have to create the alternative program or perhaps you just, you know, funnel them to boot camps and then you create the platform on top of it where people can, can invest. That could be, I think a couple of things to think about. I mean, one is we kind of all are kickstarting in higher ed a little bit. I mean, the fact that our public system is generous with grant and loan aid you know, shows that we all as a, as a country believe that there's a public benefit to education, post-secondary education in particular. K-12 is free, huge public benefit. Higher ed, not free, but subsidized. There's a public benefit there, and that's reflected in the system we have. So everybody's kickstarting this a little bit. Yeah, I, I suppose th- there still will always be some friction there and, and where the people who, and this is, I'm not, trying to speak for anybody else. But when I think about how a system like that might work, I could imagine the people who least need help getting the most help. And so, you know, to the extent that people consciously or unconsciously discriminate, for example, on something like a Kickstarter platform, that would cause access and opportunity to be less available to people who need it most. Um, Whereas institutions like colleges, public and private nonprofit have the mission of helping people who are hard to help or people who need help. And they're going to go build these programs constructively and subsidize them if need be to afford those people access and opportunity in a way that a consumer oriented marketplace probably would not. Yeah. I actually hadn't thought of that. It's like almost a, a scary thing to think about what would people left to their own devices do when they invest in other people and how would they stereotype in really unhealthy ways. I am like really glad that that doesn't exist or I, and I hope it doesn't exist in a big way. Tony, when you're talking to universities or other educational institutions and they don't want to play ball immediately, like what, why not? Like, why do people say no? There is a cost to an institution of doing this in the form of change management. So there's a way that things have been done. There are the forms of financial aid in the United States are loan, grant, and work study. There is a fourth form now, which you could call an income share agreement, or as a, in the college context, you could call it pay for success tuition. And implementing something with us is not costless in that sense. So people have to decide they want to learn a new thing. And we have to earn it. We, we show data here in progress one academic year at a time. And it's hard to go more quickly than that in the college context. So colleges are they have infinite time horizons. Many of them have been here a lot longer than most private companies. And they're thoughtful about making commitments like this. This isn't a thing a college would do for one year and cancel. They're going to go in on this and say, hey, we're, gonna, we're now going to invest in our students. We're now going to have skin in the game on student outcomes. We're going to lose the ability. We're going to give away the ability to plead ignorance on outcomes because Vimo is going to count what happens and report it back. And so I, I would say that schools who are colleges who are doing this today see themselves as leaders in this who already care a lot about value. And if there are 6,000 institutions in the United States, you know, 5,000 and change of those are going to do this when they are competitively pressured into it and not first. Totally. 
Let's talk a little bit about capital markets here. How do they interact with, with what we're doing? From Vimo's perspective, Vimo does not own income share agreements. We see capital markets as important in one mate, one sense only, really a narrower sense, probably than other income share agreement ventures have in the past. If we do these in partnerships with schools, if the main benefit of income share agreements is linking what you pay for an education to what it's really worth, then the the role of capital is not to speculate on that. It's to it's to furnish working capital to the schools and the capital markets. It's furnish working capital to the schools. So we orchestrate deals like that at Vimo for our clients. The General Assembly just published a paper on a, a big deal they did with an investor to fund a multi-campus, multi-year income share agreement program. Those That's a working capital deal for General Assembly more than it is an asset deal, the way people think of asset-backed finance, even though there are assets in the mix. And I think where you, if you look far enough in the future, Eric, to the extent that higher ed is the bigger market here. It is a huge market relative to other forms of post-secondary education and relative probably to other income share agreement use cases. There's a really mature market where colleges, my clients, issue tax-exempt bonds at like 4%, unsecured, or occasionally secured by things like cafeteria, dormitory, and parking revenue. And I don't know that, I, I don't see why a future state of this is that income share agreements aren't in that category, where colleges who do this, they're not doing it for 100% of their revenue. They're doing it for some percentage of their revenue. They're still taking federal aid. They're still taking tuition from people who can afford to pay it. And they're funding, if they need it, working capital through taxes and bond issuance at really low cost of capital. I think the role for hedge funds or other forms of finance and impact capital, it's between today and that day. And it is bigger outside of higher ed than inside higher ed. Outside higher ed, if at a Lambda school, that school needs all their working capital to come from income share agreement proceeds or borrowings. And so the capital provider there is going to have a more prominent role. And, and Tony, what, what makes this whole thing not work, like from a macro perspective? Like, is it regulation? Is it yields get, you know, higher and people just don't want to deploy their capital or allocate the capital this way like what is the universe that exists where it's out of your control but the world doesn't develop the way you expect it to we think about that frequently i think my answer is not what you will expect we could for example have a free college uh, movement in the united states we have a free college movement in the united states that could come to be through law you know, you know after two or three election cycles from today federal government could decide that college is going to be free. We think there's lots of things that are free today in one sense that people still pay for electively to get something better. And I think that if we had free college, it still wouldn't tell you which one to attend. You know, you'll still only get one shot at it. Community college is effectively free today for many people with grant aid, but they have something like, you know, 25 or 30% graduation rates and they don't have great outcomes and people would actually be better attending someplace that delivered them into an early career path more reliably. So free college is something people think about. I don't think that's our big risk. I think a big risk would be categorical. You know, if entrance into the income share agreements behaved irresponsibly, the public wouldn't like it. Policymakers wouldn't trust this. Colleges wouldn't want to have their names associated with it. And it would simply end. 
And I think that would be a, a loss because consumers need this. These are wildly popular and they help people find the best college or the best non-college for themselves. And colleges who buy into this can see that it's valuable. But I think that somebody tarnishing the category is actually our biggest risk to making it happen or not happen. Where do you see the ISA market in five years? I think this is a best practice for colleges that not for 100% of their tuition, but as a form of gap financing, as a supplemental financial aid tool. I think the majority of private nonprofit colleges are going to do this or something like it. I think it's going to precipitate an environment in post-secondary ed where everybody starts from the position of describing their value and whether they use income share agreements for that. Income share agreements measure value if your value is an employment outcome. Your value could be prestige or medical school acceptance. U.S. News measures prestige. Um, but everybody's going to be out front. They're going to own their value proposition. They're going to be upfront about that. And for the schools where employment outcomes the value, they're going to use Vimo or something like it, which will mean, you know, I, five years, it, the, the whole thing might not be over, but there will be hundreds of thousands of seats at schools done a year this way in five years. You Right now, I feel like this is sort of working with the status quo in the sense that, you know, college is the dominant way of that, you know, that people, you know, are, are, are getting secondary education and, and, and might be for some time, but... Ultimately, how do you guys look at just the future of education more broadly, like looking, you know, 10 years out, 15 years out, you know, will your kids, as you understand it, be going to, you know, your, your kids, Ollie, when you have them, will they be going to Stanford or Harvard? Or how do you think about it? maybe Ollie will start with you? How, how do you think of the future of education? So I think you no, know, if they have my genes, it's very unlikely they're going to anything like Stanford <laughs> or Harvard, unfortunately. No, but the thing that I'm most concerned about is sort of this discrepancy of opportunity that already happens at university happening in more extreme ways in elementary, middle school, and high school. And you already see, you know, these gap schools between middle school and high school where you can pay, you know, $40,000 to get an extra education. So by the time you enter high school, you are a year ahead of everyone else. You're more athletically built if you want to play college sports. And then by the time you finish high school, you went like through calculus, C, D, E, and F. And then you also have the gap year between high school and college. I think you're going to see more and more gap years and this extension of primary school get longer and longer. And it would be really interesting to see if Tonio ends up funding a lot of that. You know, I actually would argue if I was an investor and I didn't have any philanthropic or ancillary or secondary way of generating return, but somebody said, what, gen what group of students would you want to produce or, or fund ISAs for? I would say I would want to fund ISAs for kids who are taking a gap year between middle school and high school. Because I bet you that is the highest correlated with greater success. Because if you have a parenting, you know, parents who have that kind of foresight, you're given that type of advantage once you're in high school. It'll probably lead to a higher trajectory and, you know, probably trickles earlier and earlier. So I bet you, and then sort of your vector of growth, the angle matters more and more the earlier on you are. So that would be sort of the thing that I'm most focused on is how soon do we get vocational and how soon do we just create discrepancies between the average education or university for education versus more and more expensive of items, even to the point where an upper middle class family is still going with an ISA, even though they could afford regular university as we know it today, because they can't afford that $40,000 gap year between middle school and high school. Or, you know, what you could even do is say, hey, I'm going to tie it to, you know, if you're, if you're a couple with a kid going through preschool, you might be not rich enough yet, but going to be a high earner where you can have an ISA even on that kid, 
although the, the terms would be really long. So you'd have to figure that out. And you'd also attach it to the parent's income. You know, so there's all these different things that I'm, I'm interested in the younger and younger people get. Tony, how do you either react to that or, or even just a question more broadly, where do you see sort of the future of future of college or future of education going? Well, Ali's ideas have me thinking. I, my answer to that would be, I'm, I would not underestimate colleges. So I think when people are asked questions about the future of higher ed, future of education, they talk about waves of disruption putting colleges out of business. I think some colleges will end, but I think colleges are very resilient and as platforms and as places that people are, are now in the United States accustomed to going and that our government is attached to funding. I think what we'll see though is improvement by colleges. They're going to, ex- to, to compete for students. They're going to ha- they're going to compete for students. First of all, that's starting to happen. There's 19 million students post-secondary ed, but the number of new freshmen every year is, shrinking relative to the number of available seats for freshmen. And so demographically, there is pressure on colleges to compete. I don't think they're going to compete by doing things like going out of, they're not all going to go out of business. They're not going to end non-STEM courses of study or, you know, lay off all their faculties. I think what they're going to end up doing is supplementing their curricula. So where you have today Businesses that can that exist simply because colleges choose not to roll their services in. I, you'll think of a coding boot camp. Is there a reason why that can't be done in partnership with a college for its students while they're still there? You know, um, so that people have that option coming through. Is there a reason why models like Northeastern's, where students do really structured internships as part of earning their degree, couldn't work at other schools? And I think that what we're what we think of as traditional colleges are going to adapt. The winners, the survivors, are going to adapt to this. And you'll still major in poetry, and you'll learn, and you'll have a, a great liberal arts education that'll help you from your mid career forward. But for your early career path, that's going to be supplemented with something more technical. Maybe it's as simple as learning how to use Salesforce software really well, or maybe it's a structured internship. But I think we're going to see colleges adapting to that. And if you think about if, if the question is not how will people learn, but where is economic opportunity, it is supporting that transition in colleges. Vimo supports it in that we give everybody the incentive here. We're the ones who are going to give the winners the way to tout their outcome data. And we're going to let consumers choose the right students and parents choose the right schools for them this way. Let schools compete this way. Other people are going to be furnishing those structured internships or the Salesforce software training that fits well with the poetry undergraduate curriculum. And, you know, I, I guess the gap year idea is that Ali's talking about, I mean, I'm a father. They have me thinking, I don't, I don't think that Vimo is going to play in that space. When I think about who our customer is, we're very focused on higher education institutions as customers, but I could imagine there is an opportunity there, even for parent ISAs. If you think of, you know, parents who need, Extra daycare coverage early in their career so that they can be good mid-career earners is an example. And that's something that might work well with an ISA so that parents aren't going into have – a, have a risk partner, I, I guess, in doing that. What do you think is the future for companies like Make School, like Lambda, and more broadly, what is your sort of request for startups in the space? Where, where do you want people to innovate or experiment on as it relates to perhaps education more broadly or, or even ISAs more specifically? If that's to Tonio, I'll say 
I think you'll see companies like Make School innovating by partnering with colleges and distributing through colleges. And we, we see that all right now with Make School. They're taking advantage of the resilience and stickiness of the college model to distribute Make School or maybe even Make School a college itself. Uh, make, make School a college itself. Lambda, I, I respect very much. I think they're, they are looking differently and they're thinking about being a college alternative that is not a college and eating enough of the market to be venture scale. I do think that the biggest opportunity, though, business-wise, is helping colleges succeed because there's so much at stake. There's so much value there. You can, as opposed to incrementally, you know, creating some small program outside of colleges. I mean, helping colleges get things right when single colleges, Southern New Hampshire University enrolls over 100,000 students at any given time. You know, that is a huge opportunity to improve. If you can make that somehow 1% better, that's very, very valuable. We're very focused on that at Vimo. What I would say, Eric and Ali, is I wouldn't, I'm not foreclosing that income share agreements might be used by others for really creative and valuable things. I am saying, though, that my one lesson I learned from SoFi is focus. And if we focus on helping our college customers succeed, I think we'll have a, a great business at Vimo and we'll have really happy customers. What other applications are you excited about, though, for other people who are curious about where to experiment with, with ISAs? I think the most interesting to me is the pricing of things that are difficult to price. Education is one of those things. So is healthcare. And so you have, I think there are categories of services in the United States where pricing is not set by the government, but is also very um, inconsistent from geography to geography, like hospital to hospital, the same medical procedure could vary greatly. And its value is really linked to like how well it worked. I mean, a knee, a knee surgery is only good if you're walking and running again, you know, as opposed to one that isn't successful. I don't think there's been any attempt to link price to value in a lot of those situations. You know, and, and the thought experiment on this that I think these examples would derive from is if you made a helmet that could teach anybody any skill in one second, how much would you charge to wear the helmet? You know, somebody, it might have taken you a million dollars to build. It might have taken you zero to build. I don't know. It might have taken you 10 years to build. 100 years to build, whatever. But at this point, what do you charge for one person learning anything they want in one second? And I think that's a really hard thing to know. But if you were able to just say, well, let's take 10% of what you earn from using this, it's a pretty fair way to go. Oh, I also think anything that the input creates a, a new output of income. You know, I think the, the really basic thing is if you go to a coding school, you go to a university, you end up, you know, you're, you're on some theoretically higher trajectory in terms of how much you're going to earn compared to if you hadn't. And so, you know, one of the other things I'm surprised I haven't seen, well, I'm not surprised I haven't seen it, but I think we'll eventually see is ISAs for immigration. So somebody will sponsor some individual who, you know, they would basically put up the half a million dollars you need for an EB-5, for example, and then they would get a percentage of that person's income. And you would basically say, okay, so who is the kid at Stanford or Harvard who for some reason can't get a green card or can't get a visa? I'm willing to put half a million dollars in exchange for that person's income. And if they live in the United States, their income will likely be higher than if they live anywhere else. So that's another one that will probably eventually happen. It is interesting. So what's the difference for Lambda to build their own sort of in-house Vimo versus, versus use something like Vima? I think that comes down to focus, just like, I mean, focus. So in the end, 
if you want to move institutional capital through here. So this is, in the case of Lambda, this is a school that, you know, for the benefit of listeners, this is a school that charges no upfront tuition. It's outside the federal financial aid system. They take a percent of graduates' earnings when they complete. And therefore, Lambda's working capital needs to come through some kind of institutional finance. As they get bigger, that is going to be more and more money. I know that the people behind Lambda hadn't run a school before. And so they are scaling a thing they haven't done before very impressively, as are many others in that space. Asset managers who put capital behind buckets of assets like income share agreements, they're not taking equity risk and they don't want to take startup risk. They want to take the asset risk and they want to eliminate the other types. Unless a business has old people who have done this before on a stable platform who can pass institutional diligence to service assets like this, not just regulatory. The ISAs have some regulatory novelty to them, so there's that. But I, I mean, like, nuts and bolts of can these people be trusted with $100 million of strangers' money against assets? That, that's something that's uh, I think you have to focus to build. And so I think it can be built. We're building it. We've passed that diligence at BMO. We have institutional, we have forward flow agreements for our schools in excess of $100 million. But we had to focus on that. We had to recruit to that. We had to build software for it. And I think that's another whole company. So if you were going to focus Funders in- want it to be a third party. Funders aren't going to want a school to be administering and servicing and doing all this for themselves. And a, a school isn't going to want to service these things with their own students. It's just there's too much conflict, too much complication. But if they were great at it, they'd want to do it for more than that school. I, I think it's just its own business. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Do you have a, any other startups in request for education or request for, I say, more, more broadly? I mean, we haven't talked about credentialing. We haven't talked about other problems in education. I'll, I'll, anything come to mind that you want to see people tackle in the next few years? Yeah, I think anything cross-border is interesting. So whether, you know, it's it's very expensive to move, you know, you need certain credentials, you need someone to vouch for you. And so whether it's, you know, a foreign student trying to get a PhD here, anything outside of the current age range that I say is the most popular for, either super early or later with some sort of uh, immigration component would be super interesting to us. Yeah. A lot of the sort of Kickstarter for people idea seems to have most you know, excitement in sponsoring global, global, global talent, but notwithstanding the concerns you mentioned, you mentioned earlier, Tony, do you have any, any uh, last questions of Ali? No, I've just, I've known Ali for years and it's great to be recording something with him. Tony, it was probably the second conversation I ever, had with anyone when we were thinking about getting into alternative lending he was the person who pointed us to our first vendors our council everything and there's a really really good chance that we would have been too nervous to do it without even having talked to him you know it's it's awesome to see that he's building a business now i think he's actually figured out how to make isas work and he's got like a distribution distribution not a lot of people really understood and he kind of understood the nuts and bolts of the space and the consumer well enough to pull it off it's also be part of this and the progress he's made recently has been completely unbelievable. So it's just exciting. That's awesome. It's uh, great to watch Pro Venture. Same story. Uh, it's an institution now and in, in trades in, in crypto and asset and, and debt, and crypto credit and equity. And I'm proud to be affiliated in a, in a small way. Awesome. Tonio, what sort of trade offs are 
our make school and lambda making against each other? What are sort of the, the pros and cons of each? Um, and how should be, you know, people be thinking about, hey, if they're trying to do something like that, whether they should work within the existing infrastructure or just go balls out anti-college uh, in, in the alternative infrastructure? I'm not an expert in the distinctions between those businesses from a student's perspective. And so that's hard for me to answer from that perspective. I think from the perspective of a person wanting to try something new, who has a vision for for change in education or education technology, I think it can make a lot of sense to build the thing you envision your way outside of colleges, show that it works and get a little data, then sell it into colleges or distribute through them, as opposing to trying to start with colleges. And the reason for that is that nobody has any imagination. That goes, it's not a knock on colleges. That's industry-wide. That's, that's national. You look at, watch a home decorating show and a person will, or a, a, one of those home buying shows and a person will decline to buy a house because the paint's the wrong color. And if you think about it, that's nonsense. It's absurd. It's such an easy thing to change, but they simply don't have the imagination to envision it in the color they like. An entrepreneur who wants to get into higher ed and sell to colleges should do everything they can to model what they're doing outside of colleges and show them that this is what it looks like. This is how it works. This is how students interact with it. It's easier and faster to do that outside colleges. And then you can sell them something they understand. I think the alternative would be, you know, build something that works awesome for a college where you already have a relationship, get it in there, and then take that data and sell to other colleges. In the end, colleges love reference clients just as much as having the full picture painted, but they're both important. Yeah. And talk a little bit, you know, in a world in which people become an asset class, what other surprises might we see that come along with that? I think to the extent that income share agreements grow beyond the, the use case of helping people choose the best schools for them and link the cost of tuition to its value, if we grow beyond those things, people will have to address, I think, challenges like moral hazard and adverse selection. There's an information asymmetry between a person asking for an income share agreement and the person funding that. You know, you, you cannot read their mind or their heart. You can't constrain their choices if you're the funder. And you have to then wonder, how do you know what they're really going to do? I don't, I don't think that's easy to know in the context of choosing a school it's easier to address there's also moral hazard you know in the context of waiving some or all of your tuition a person a school is not saying there's all the money you need to go be inactive for five to ten years or to leave the workforce permanently but in the case of something outside of higher education you know if the dollar value is big enough a person can afford to work less than they otherwise would which distorts the relationship between a person receiving capital and an income share agreement and the funder. I think those are big challenges that would need to be worked through for this concept to scale outside of higher ed. I hope we sense your time, Tony. This has been a, been a fantastic episode. Are there any sort of last minute advice for people out there who are thinking of building something in the in the ISA space or, or sort of future education space more, more broadly and Otherwise, any last plugs for, for Vimeo where people can learn more about it and more about you online? As to advice, I think I've said it a number of times, but focus is essential on the right customer. I think 
employing people who know what right looks like, either as co-founders or as uh, employees, is really important. Every startup is a scientific experiment. In the scientific method, you control for all the variables but one, test the one, and see what you learn. And the reason we control for all the variables is then it's replicable. And I think too often in startups, people are trying to innovate in every direction, and particularly in something like income share agreements where you could innovate on the funding model, innovate on the use case, innovate on how you're going to service the assets. And if you're varying too many things at once, I don't think it's replicable, which means in ISA, in, in startup speak, it means it's not scalable. And so I would say to people, focus, work with people who know what right looks like, and vary the minimum number of things required to test what your business needs to do, or to do, for example, to adapt ISAs to a new context. If you introduce more, you're simply loading your business up with risk and making it harder to scale. Plugs for Vimo. Uh, we're at vemo.com. We are on Twitter at vemoed, vemoed. I'm at Tony Odiso on Twitter. And yeah, we love colleges. We love helping colleges succeed. We care a lot about that. If you're somebody who cares about that, if you're affiliated with a college or building things for colleges, we're really interested in hearing from you and maybe working with you. I really liked your, it, it, you need to make it someone's job in order to, to buy it. How can startups know whether they are, whether they're doing that? How should they be evaluating whether it's someone's job to buy what they, what they're selling? I think you have to start with who will buy this thing who exists today and how different am I allowed to be from what they already buy that they would still buy it? So if there's somebody whose job is buying asset backed securities and they're going to buy, they buy the senior notes out of ABS deals, you know, can I make a senior notes from ABS? backed by ISAs? The answer is yes. You know, okay, great. Can I make something, you know, what's missing from that? What do I need? I need, well, I need people to buy mezzanine pieces. I need residual. I need an equity owner. I need ratings. There's things that you have to think like, can we synthesize the stuff that they already buy? Whereas if you're, if you're trying to sell something completely new that people don't have the job of buying every day, then that's actually your business idea. I'm going to teach people to buy a new thing. If you were going to do the Kickstarter for ISAs, and you were successful in getting enough investors there to fund all the ISAs, you should probably sell, once you get those investors in, you should just sell them everything in the world. You should, you should be selling everything there, not just income share agreement interests. And, and that's become your business then, you know, is sourcing that capital, if that makes sense. And it, whereas if you're going to yeah, institutional investors, they, there's a, they have their narrow band of what they'll look at. And you have to sell them, the, you have to make your thing the thing that they buy. You have to internalize the complexity of that. And, and that has to happen within your business or between you and your customers. And then you have to go out to this, these suppliers, in this case, capital suppliers, and make it that they can integrate easily. Yeah, totally. I think that's a great, uh, great note to, to end on in terms of finding customer value. Tony, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. It's been great. Eric, I'm really grateful that you had me. This was fantastic. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 